I remember my 16-year-old cousin's blue face. He was dressed up in a suit lying in a plush coffin. The funeral home arranged for him to be driven in a nice car, Cadillac, if I remember. He had breath and warmth and color and everything a couple of days before, but he had none of them now. And I remember the world colliding with the reality of death. The world seemed okay. The day was even beautiful. My cousin was dressed in a suit. Flowers surrounded him. He was taken into a church and then to a chapel. Everyone was wearing nice clothes as if those things could remove the sting of death. Death was there and he wasn't dressed up. It seemed raw and cruel. And it's that everybody wants to make death acceptable, cover its ugliness. But the reality of death isn't neat. And it's not just that day, but it's the whole world that tries to make death acceptable. And then, because we, if we really experienced death, if we really knew what it was, if we faced it every day, it might paralyze us. It has paralyzed lots of people throughout the history, thinking about death, the finitude of our lives, and the, and the pain that it offers us. We couldn't face it. Think about the song, Disney song, Circle of Life, and the way in which it tries to make death acceptable. It says, death is not the end, but you will live on in grass and flowers and animals in this big part of the circle of life. And they sing about it. You're going to be a part of this beautiful circle, so don't worry about that. Think about the things that we say to one another to make ourselves feel better about death. I'll remember you. You'll always live in my memory. We also comfort each other by saying how death is just part of life. You're born, but you die. That's just life. But no matter how we try, I think death has a very unnatural quality about it. It screams out. I think this is one of my favorite poems because I think it expresses death so well. It's W.H. Auden, A Funeral Blues. You might have seen it, actually, in Four Weddings and a Funeral. Um, I think the text will come out on the screen. Stop all the clocks, cut off the telephone, prevent the, the dog from barking with a juicy bone. Since the piano... Uh, silence the piano with a muffled drum, bring out the coffin, let the mourners come. Let airplane circle moaning ahead, scribbling on the sky, message, he is dead. Put crepe bows around the white necks of the public doves, let the traffic policemen wear black cotton gloves. He was my north, my south, my east and west, my working week and my Sunday rest, my noon, my midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever, but I was wrong. The stars are not wanted now. Put everyone, put out everyone. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood. For nothing now can ever come to any good. 
But expresses this raw emotion and the reality of death, doesn't it? Death is ugly and it's not acceptable to Auden. There is an unnatural quality about it. Even the most hardened materialists who think that there is no transcendence don't want to accept it as part of reality. Even the, the most ardent evolutionists who say that death is part of life. It's, in fact, it's maybe a good force that, 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 that brings us to progress. Even then, at funerals, at the passing away of their loved ones, they will cry. They will wipe their tears off their face because death bites and it still stings. For we know in our guts that life is not supposed to, to end like this. It's not supposed to end in death. And the Bible has always told us so, that it's not part of our lives. Look to verse 13 of our passage. There's just a little hint of that, isn't there? Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. Natural sleep is the nourishment you get at night when you close your eyes and rest before the next morning comes. What's implied here is that death is an unnatural sleep. In fact, in, Christian, in the Christian theology, death is an intrusion that entered into the world unwarranted because through our sin. Death, as we know it, entered into the world when sin entered. Wage of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And neither sin nor death properly belongs to God's good world. And that is why death brings such grief to our lives, sadness to our lives. And we see the devastation of death, what death causes even in this text. So if you can remember Martha, Martha can't wait until Jesus comes. When she, she hears the news of Jesus coming, she runs out to him to meet Christ. And the first words that she utters is laden with sadness and maybe tinged with accusation. She says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why couldn't you come earlier? But maybe she feels she crossed a little line here. So she quickly adds, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Well, she doesn't really think that Jesus is going to raise him up, as we see later on. But Mary also comes to meet Jesus later in verse 29, and her words are the same. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, verse 32. If you were here, we would not have had to face this devastation. I think here we come to one of the most remarkable passages in the Bible. Jesus held it together the first time when Martha came to him. But he loses it when he sees Mary. Look down to verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He sees the tremendous harm death has caused as he looks around his, the family that he loves and his deep affection, I think, is so profoundly expressed in these two short words of verse 35. Jesus wept. 
It is an extraordinary verse, if you think about that. Jesus, who created the heavens and the earth, the universe and everything that breathes, everything that there is, sees this family and he weeps. He cried. And these weren't tears of professional mourners uh, um, the family might have hired. Having become a human being, he wasn't detached from our reality. We see the extent of God Emmanuel here, God with us. In the second person of the Trinity, God took up in his humanity pains and sorrows into himself so that he could comfort us in the times of our mourning. And the fact that Jesus weeps is extraordinary, but even more extraordinary is the second half of verse 33. John continued there, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. The words, the words deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Well, is in fact, well, not, not troubled, deeply moved in spirit is one word in Greek and is repeated again in verse 38. And all the commentators agree that the, the, uh, deeply moved is really, it doesn't do justice what the, uh, to what the meaning, uh, to, the, to the meaning of the word. It has this sense of anger rather than sadness. Now, outside of the Bible, the word is described to, 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 to uh, describe um, uh, the, the snort of a horse as it faces its enemy. And one translation goes, Jesus became angry in spirit. And another offers, he was outraged in spirit. He was outraged and angry. Well, you wonder why? Funeral probably isn't the best place to get angry, right? But he was angry. What was he angry at? After all, the reason why he came late was because he delayed He's coming by two days in verse 6, if you look to verse 6. Well, some say he's angry at the hypocrisy and the unbelief of the Jews. Well, I don't think that's likely. More likely is that his anger is directed at death itself. He is angry at the chaos and the havoc that death has caused in the world. Death is an intruder to the good world that God created. And Jesus knew that death had no place in his world. And he's angry at it. A Princeton theologian, um, uh, Benjamin Warfield, uh, once put it uh, like this. The spectacle of the distress of Mary and her companions enraged, enraged Jesus because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death. It's unnaturalness. It's violent tyranny. In Mary's grief, he sees and feels the misery of the whole race and burns with rage against the oppressor of men. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind, uh, behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he had come into the world to destroy. The tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but that is incidental. His soul is held by rage, and he advances to the tomb as a champion who prepares for a conflict. And like the farmer um, in his parable, Jesus can pronounce his verdict, an enemy did this. Death 
has a firm grip over this world. And the world believes that we should sanitize it. We should make it clean. And live with its inevitability. What Jesus' reaction tells us in this chapter is that that's simply not true. Death is profoundly unnatural. Although it has been part of our lives, part of this world, it has not always been. And it will not always be. Christ came to defeat death. And the one who chiefly wields its power, the devil himself. We will one day live in a world where death is no more. So, there in that instance, Jesus weeps at the face of death. And when we face it, we should have a profound sense of grief as well. It sounds like a silly thing to say, since tears come naturally to us in a funeral, when we lose our loved ones. But I think there is, in a sense, in, 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 a Christian, in the Christian, um, this resistance against tears, isn't there? We shouldn't be too quick to comfort ourselves when the thought, uh, when death confronts us. Christ knew the sting of death. He wept and he became angry. And it's okay to take time and mourn for our loved ones. It's okay to take time to see the sadness in this world and recognize it as an evil intruder. We cope with it, but we reject it as a natural feature of our lives and look forward to the new creation where death will not have a place. So we mourn, but not as those who have, as those who have no hope. Second point, if Jesus simply became angry at death, but was unable to do anything about that, then we should question whether he is worth believing. When Martha greeted Jesus, he replied by saying, Lazarus will rise again, didn't he? And Martha answers, I know he will rise again at the end of uh, at the last day. It's then Jesus declares, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Well, I am the resurrection and the life. It's a difficult way of speaking, isn't it? What does it mean? What does he mean by saying he is the resurrection and the life? He's not saying that he is something in the same way that I may say I am a human being. He's not making an ontological claim here, like, I am Korean. I am the resurrection and the life. What he is saying is both that, that both the resurrection and the life have everything to do with him. They're inextricably connected to who he is. In fact, it's what you think of him that determines what happens to your life and at the end of your life. Listen to his words again. Whoever believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. What we think of Jesus determines our end. He has the authority over life, death, and the resurrection. 
He is the resurrection and the life. I want to also add that Jesus is not just talking about the natural death that comes to all of us at the end of our lives. He's talking about the second death that comes after judgment. Listen again. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. You will die. That is sure, but you will survive the second death that comes after the judgment. The death verdict at the judgment day is far worse than the first death that comes to all of us. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. If we believe in Christ, we'll never face the consequences that comes from living a sinful life. The eternal damnation at the judgment day. We will then receive eternal life. It's an extraordinary claim that all that has to do with who he is. But I once met a a self-proclaimed witch who said that she could stop time. She was actually telling me a lot of different things. And at that point, I thought, okay. People claim a lot of different things. Jesus proclaimed that he can save you from judgment and give you eternal life. But how do we know that that claim is true? After all, such claims can't be proven right away, right? The resurrection comes after death. So how can you prove it? Prove it. Well, that this is one way that Jesus does it, isn't it? In order to show that he has authority over life, death, and resurrection, in order to glorify himself, he raises Lazarus. No one believed that he could do it. Not even Martha and Mary. Um, It just doesn't occur to them that he could raise him from death. When Jesus says... Um, his disciple, when Jesus says uh, that, 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 that Lazarus is sleeping, the, the disciples think that he's talking about natural sleep. And the crowd in our text laments as well in verse 37. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind, blind man have kept this man from dying? No one expects Jesus to have the authority to raise a man from death. And it's understandable. It's one thing to go to a doctor once a man is seriously ill. But you wouldn't really think of bringing a person who has been dead for four days to a doctor and expect him to heal him. And many Jews believe that the spirit of dead, the dead, hovered around the body for three days. While Lazarus has been dead for four days, in that account, in that account, he's really dead. There's no chance he's coming back. But when Jesus arrives at the tomb, he starts commanding, take away that stone, verse 38. Martha thinks it's a bad idea because he's been dead for four days and he starts stinking. But Christ insists, and after praying a short prayer for the benefit of the people gathered there, he commands in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. I am the resurrection and the life. People consider death as a full stop, a period. Even now, most people believe that death is a full stop. 
Listen to Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist philosopher. There is darkness without, and when I die, there will be darkness within. There is no splendor, no, no vastness anywhere, only triviality for a moment, and then nothing. That's death for most people. Put Russell's words in contrast to words of Kohlberg in a 19th century Lutheran theologian. This is what he said. When I die and someone finds my skull, still preach to him and say, I have no eyes, nevertheless I see him. Though I have no lips, I kiss him. I have no tongue, yet I sing praise to him with all who came upon his name. I am a hard skull, yet I am wholly softened and melted in his love. I lay here exposed on God's acre, yet I am there in paradise. All suffering is forgotten. His great love has done this for us when he carried his cross and went to Golgotha. There is joy and assurance in Kohlberg's voice. For the trap of death has been transformed into passageway into paradise. Death is no longer affixed with nothingness, darkness, and fear. Rather, it's affixed with the hope of life, a new life undiscovered, joy inexpressible. Physical death is, is a bad thing, but it's not the worst thing. It has lost its sting. We mourn our own death and the death of our loved ones, but not as those who have no hope. Christ has given us the hope of resurrection. Now, on a practical level, I think this might affect how much we cling to life. Our contemporaries are obsessed with lengthening our lives at all costs. We spend billions of dollars in anti-aging motions and health foods. I mean, I'm I'm an Asian, so I I think I can say this. I mean, we eat most absurd things (laughs) if we think that this can extend our life just a little bit, don't we? And when we talk about the hope of healing and relief of physical pain, people flock to our healing services with high hopes. They love it. And in America, 30% of one person's life's medical bill is spent on the last year of life. Billions of dollars spent to lengthen our life just a bit longer. Last year of their lives. The Christian does not cling to life with such tenacity. We recognize life as a gift. But when God calls you, you go. We are a people who are sure of the glory that lies beyond the grave. We go through the dark passage of physical death in order to taste heaven. But not just heaven. And then the resurrection. And I hope you'll be a great witness to those uh, who are around you when you die. That you do not cling to this life as if it is the end. That you look forward to the glory of life that awaits you as you die. And some of you might have paid atten- uh, stopped paying attention because you think you're young and have a long way to go. But your day will come 
And maybe sooner than you think. Only God knows the number of your days. Now, I'm not trying to put a damper on your life. <laughs> but it's just that death has a 100% success rate. You will die. You will all die. I am the resurrection and the life. It's our relationship with Christ that determines our end. And I want all of us to be secure in Christ, in the hope of Christ. For that will transform not only the end of your life, but your life as well. But in that triumph of raising the dead man lies the seed of Christ's coming defeat. Look down to verse 47, if you have your Bibles with you. Verse 47, where the chief priests and the Pharisees meet for an emergency meeting, they're afraid that if Jesus goes on like that, everyone will believe him. If they do, then people will make Jesus the king of Israel, and they're afraid that Romans might come and they destroy the entire kingdom, the nation of Israel. So listen to what Caiaphas, the high priest, says in verse 50. Verse 50. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. What he is saying is strictly political. In order to prevent Romans from coming to destroy their nation, what he's saying is they will sacrifice Jesus. They will kill Jesus. And so we, we, we see the sinister line in verse 53. From that day on, they plotted to take his life. So in a story where Jesus raises a dead man from death, his death is foretold. But killing Jesus wasn't simply their plan. What Caiaphas was saying, John says, was a prophecy. It's something that God was doing. John goes on to say in verse 51 that Caiaphas prophesied for Jesus would die a sacrificial death for a nation of Israel and all those who believe in him. Jesus has to die so that he could gather all his children unto himself. There was a girl who lost his mother, uh, her mother, and the family was a Christian family, and she was raised with the knowledge that Jesus died for us. So she asked her father a few days after her mother's death, well, if Jesus died for us, why does mommy have to die? The father couldn't think of an answer right away, at least not in a way that she'd understand. But a few days later, they were driving to the funeral, and they were stuck in a traffic jam. And on the road, they saw a big lorry on the road, on a big truck. And the father then knew how to answer her da- uh, his daughter. He asked his daughter, Darling, if you had to be run over, by which would you ra- rather get run over by? The lorry or its shadow? Well, I mean, the answer is shadow. <laughs> she answered, of course, the shadow. Getting run over by lorry would be very painful. He then said, well, that's sort of what God did for mommy. He accepted the glory of the wrath of God's judgment so that only the shadow might pass over mommy. Lazarus rose, but yet he died again. But Jesus' death and resurrection 
affects all of us. It brings salvation. It brings eternal life to all of us. And Jesus' Jesus's death is foreshadowed in this story. And Jesus dies a few months later. Death will still hurt, but I hope you will mourn with the hope of the resurrection and live each of your day freed from the shadow of death. So I've been reading a lot of different people's quotes today, and I want to end with final words of Mark Ashton, who was the vicar of Round Church in Cambridge. He died, he passed away a year ago, about a year ago, after battling with cancer. And I think he really understood what it meant, what Jesus meant. I am the resurrection and the life. This is what he wrote shortly before he died. So despite the very great strength of human love, it cannot destroy death. There is only one relationship that can do that. And it is the relationship that stands behind all other relationships. So it is in terms of relating to him that I must understand my death. Jesus will be the same. Indeed, he will be more real and more true than he has ever been before. It will be his voice that will call me into his presence. He will himself take me to be with him so that I may be be with him forever. He is first and the last, the beginning and the end. It has been said that for for the believer, the end of the world is more of a person then it is an event. That is certainly true of the end of life. My death may be the event with which my physical life on earth ends, but it will also be the moment at which my relationship with Jesus becomes complete. That relationship is the only thing that has made sense of my physical life, and at my death, it will be everything. I am the resurrection and the life. And I hope you will, you will say the same things that Mark Ashton says as you pass away in the end. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you for the price that you have paid so that we may have life in you. Help us to be mindful of that hope of the resurrection as we live that we may live a life worthy of that resurrection. We may live a life worthy of the price that you paid for it. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.